Welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast, where we dive deep into the topics of neuroplasticity, epigenetics, biohacking, mindfulness, and functional medicine. I'm your host, Drew Perode, and each week my team and I bring on a new guest who we think can help you improve your brain health, feel better, and live more. Today's guest is a friend of mine, Dr. Marvin Singh. Dr. Singh is an integrative gastroenterologist in San Diego, California. He's a diplomat of the American Board of Integrative Medicine and board-certified internist and gastroenterologist. Dr. Singh was trained by Dr. Andrew Weil, a pioneer in the field of integrative medicine at the University of Arizona Center for Integrative Medicine. He's currently a voluntary assistant clinical professor at UCSD in the Department of Family Medicine and Public Health. He's also been a clinical assistant professor at UCLA right here in Los Angeles and an assistant professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins University. Dr. Singh is a member of the Academy of Anti-Aging Medicine, American College of Lifestyle Medicine, and the True Health Initiative, amongst many other societies. He's actively involved in the American Gastroenterological Association and American Medical Association. He's co-editing the second edition of the textbook of Integrative Gastroenterology. In his private practice, Dr. Singh is dedicated to guiding his patients towards optimal wellness every step of the way. He uses cutting-edge tests and personally designed protocols to develop a truly individualized plan on genetics, microbiome, metabolism, and lifestyle. Dr. Singh, welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, It's been an honor to get to know you over the last few months and geek out. We met together in San Diego. We've had so many great conversations and... uh, I'm glad this worked out because we've done some other podcasts on gut health, but I feel that, uh, you know, first of all, I just want to give you a little shout out. You are a triple board certified gastroenterologist, one of few in the country, right? That's right. And so your knowledge of gut health just goes deeper. Every time we have a chat, I learn something completely new in the unraveling of uh, the microbiota and the microbiome. So um, I'm super excited to dive into it. And I want to start off with On that theme, I want to start off with one topic that when you were sharing it with our team just blew me away. So there are now cutting edge epigenetic biomarkers called DNA methylation phenoage that are being found in the gut. And there's some interesting research that's there. What are these biomarkers and what is our phenoage? This is so fascinating. Um, We know that... uh, Certain lifestyle factors are important for our health and wellness. And now we actually have a type of test that we can use to actually see what kind of impact we're having in real life on our DNA and our chromosomes. So, you know, in the in the past few years, we've been talking about telomeres, which are the little caps at the end of our chromosomes. And uh, using and one, that. One methodology of looking at somebody's biological age. Right. So yeah. even though you might be 45, yeah. they can do the testing on your telomeres. And they can say, well, you actually have the end caps of somebody who's 65. Exactly. So you got to pay attention to your health. Exactly. But now, actually, the uh, scientists are working on this thing called DNA methylation phenoage, just one name of it. Basically, the way to understand it is uh, if you look at a tree trunk, right? A tree trunk has a lot of rings going around it. And we can kind of tell how old the tree is by looking at how many rings are on the tree trunk. And this methylation phenoage is basically the same concept. Methylation basically means where you have these little methyl groups, which are carbons and hydrogens that attach to the different genes across the whole genome. 
And when we look at how much methylation is going on across the 20 million genes, we can get an idea of how old we actually are. And actually, it seems to outperform these prior measures in actually predicting age. It's super fascinating. And and some of those prior other measures, they were saying like, it's a better predictor than than like inflammation. Oh, yeah. And so what are some of these other... So, uh, so yeah, so, you know, not only can it actually uh, help predict age more precisely, it can actually help predict um, age-related outcomes like Alzheimer's disease, heart disease, um, you know, and a variety of other conditions um, by looking at how much methylation is going on uh, in certain areas of the gene, uh, of your genome. And what's even more exciting is that this is actually much different than just doing whole genome sequencing because we've known we can do that for a long time. What this is, is looking at the methylation load across the genome. And we can actually see that that methylation load changes over time based on your interventions. So this type of testing is actually really unique because you can actually see that things are changing as you make the intervention. So you can adjust and see whether or not you're on the right track or you're on the wrong track or what's going on with uh, some of the lifestyle modifications that you're doing. So it can actually be used to predict inflammation and other kind of conditions. And you can see that if you make certain lifestyle interventions that the methylation load will decrease. So in layman's term, let's zoom out. Yeah. What, what is this telling us? You know, what is this telling us about our gut and taking care of our gut? So it's actually, this is actually also quite fascinating because we know that the same things that we do to modulate the microbiome or make the microbiome stronger are the same things that actually modify our gene expression, which is this epigenetics that we're talking about. And let's pause there for just one second, because I like to break things down. So for a long time in history, we sort of thought, we always knew that there was this gut bacteria. We uh-huh. know we have bacteria on our skin, but it was a little bit of like an afterthought. We didn't really fully understand uh, what are all the mechanisms that are that are going on there. And then the world of the microbiome exploded and people said, okay, bacteria is important because it plays a role in uh, you know, digestion and other things. And now this is taking things even a step further, Yeah. right? And so with this information, what's that next step? What are we understanding about how important our gut microbiome is. We're understanding that actually the microbiome can influence the gene expression. So, you know, sometimes, you know, some people talk about the microbiome as the end-all be-all, and some people talk about your genes and your your DNA as the end-all be-all, but actually neither one alone is what's important. It's the interaction, the interface between this and your environment that's actually what creates health or disease. Our gut microbiome is telling our, our DNA how to express itself, what yeah. genes to turn on, what genes to turn off. And so if there are challenges in our gut microbiome, which, I mean, it seems this, every, this day and age, everybody's got some yeah. issues with their gut microbiome, and we'll talk about why that is, uh, but that is having all sorts of impact in things that we never knew were associated. I see on here you've you know mentioned like, Aging and heart disease are things that our gut microbiome can impact our genetic expression on. Yeah, exactly. Is that's it's so it, the human body is so complex in that it's uh, all these elements are interconnected and interwoven and talk to each other in such a complex circuitry. But it's really also quite simple at the same time because 
the same things that we need to do to optimize our DNA health, our brain health, and our gut health are, are, are work in the same way to kind of help everything kind of come together as one big orchestra, you know, everything plays in harmony. You know, a big message of this podcast is that if you want to take better care of your brain, you got to take better care of your body because what exactly. you do to your body, you do your brain. And then specifically in this conversation, what you do to your gut, you do to your brain. Help us understand that a little bit more. What's the relationship between the gut and the brain? Past listeners of this podcast will have heard of the gut-brain access, uh-huh. but I always like to revisit things. Tell us about that connection. And these days we talk about the gut-brain microbiome access because um, you know a lot of people don't know, but the gut has its own nervous system. It's called the enteric nervous system. And there are uh, more than 100 million nerves in the gut itself. That's more than the spinal cord. And all these neurotransmitters, hormones, signals, they all generate in the gut. And they communicate with the nervous system in the gut, which communicates with the central nervous system in the brain. And so when something happens in the digestive tract, you immediately feel that as a mood or a sensation. It can affect your memory. And that's what we mean by the, the gut-brain connection because what happens digestively can impact how you feel. It can also affect how you want to eat and what kind of foods you eat, interestingly enough. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about that. How does our microbiome influence our choices when it comes to what we're planning on eating? Yeah, food <clears throat> eating food is like a... What I, I tell people is a multidimensional experience for the whole body. We think food is like, okay, I'm just going to eat this and it tastes good and move on with it. But actually what's happening is it's, it's an experience for your whole entire body. So your brain is taking in all this information, auditory cues, visual cues, taste cues, and it's uh, putting it together uh, in a little bundle of information alongside with what's happening in your gut and in your bloodstream biochemically. And it stores that uh, in a part of your brain. And so when you see that food in the store, for example, you may, you know, and maybe you're feeling a little down. That's where comfort foods comes from, right? We never, we always talk about comfort foods, but we never really explain what's actually happening, you know, biologically inside of our bodies. So comfort foods, the whole concept of comfort foods is like you want to eat something because it's going to make you feel good. How do you know that it makes you feel good? Because your brain has stored the memory of past experience and it's reminding you that, hey, you're a little down. Why don't you eat that ice cream? You might feel a little bit better. So, you know, that's where we kind of get stuck in the rut. People start eating a lot of junk foods and these fast foods because they feel like it might make them feel better, give them a little bit of extra dopamine or serotonin surge. But um, the important thing to remember is that, yes, we do store these memories and our brain does communicate with each other, with parts of different parts of um, the brain. Um, excuse me, the brain. Different parts of the brain communicate with each other. The reward center uh, communicates with the memory center in order to help influence what um, food choices you make. But we have the ultimate control because we have that prefrontal cortex. And so, when you're talking to people about breaking the habits. You have to kind of remind that, yes, this is happening in the background, but you have ultimate control. You're in the driver's seat. 
it reminds me of also this idea that sometimes people take comfort foods or eat comfort foods because they want to suppress what's going on. And if you look at a lot of the comfort foods today, <laughs> I mean, it's one thing to have a bowl of chicken soup, right? <laughs> yeah. That's like, can be healthy for you, can be very comforting. But if you look at a lot of comfort foods today and you mentioned ice cream uh -huh. or chocolate or these other things, you get this dopamine hit from the sugar. Yeah. But also there's this suppressive thing of I'm feeling an uncomfortable feeling, which often, where does that show up in the body? It can show yep. up in like the, often people say in the gut, right? I can feel like butterflies in my stomach. Something went wrong. Something isn't feeling right. What can I do to sort of suppress that temporarily? And we will reach for comfort foods. I mean, everybody knows who's gone through, uh, you know, a breakup or something similar. You can reach for foods to kind of numb yourself out a little bit. Yeah, and maybe for you with your past experience, when you were troubled in the past, that chicken soup made you feel less nervous because it reminded you of being a kid at home and your mom taking care of you, for example. Sure. And so, you know, now that you're 25 and you just broke up with your girlfriend that you've had for five years, you feel that same sort of anxiety or nervousness and you go for that chicken soup because your brain is telling you that this is what calms you down because it remembers from when you were five years old. Right. And in that way, I guess it's sort of like, self-soothing of the of like the vagal yeah, connection exactly and then there could be self-numbing of the vagal connection if we're shooting for things that are a little bit hyper stimulating uh foods that are out there super fascinating i want to go back to the gut brain connection you know you talked about the neurons inside of the uh, gut gut and people talk about there being as as close to um the same number of neurons in the gut as the brain, but I think the brain has more. Is that correct? In total, in yeah. total. But as far as the the spinal cord, the gut has more nerves than the spinal cord, which is incredibly Crazy, fascinating. Right? So they talk about, for instance, like neurotransmitters getting produced in the in the gut, like uh -huh. serotonin. Yeah. Part of this discovery of the gut brain connection is this understanding that when people think of uh, uh, being down or individuals who are dealing with uh, depression, they often think of the brain and the neurotransmitters in the brain not working. But these neurotransmitters are, you're saying, created in the gut. 90 to 95% of serotonin is in the gut. And what's the mechanism that that serotonin that's created in our gut, which obviously relates to our diet, our microbiome, our inflammation, what's the mechanism of how it makes its way up into the brain? So, I mean, the, the gut has its own nervous system, and so uh, and through the bloodstream as well, these hormones are transmitted uh, centrally. So uh, I believe that the nerves in the gut communicate with the nerves in the brain through the enteric nervous system and the vagus nerve. So well, you can kind of think of it as, you know, uh, a huge superhighway, this vagus nerve. And information is just zipping up and down, zipping up and down all day long, every moment of the day. And so, you know, things happen so quickly, you don't even really realize that this is what's happening and it happens. It's kind of like, you know, they, they've done studies even where they stimulate the digestive tract and instantaneously they see a part of the brain light up. So this is not like something that takes time. It's something that happens instantly. And so um, uh, that's actually a quite fascinating part of this, uh, the gut-brain connection is that these... Uh, influences uh, on our gut can create change in our brain and how the brain works and functions as well. And it goes both ways. So if uh, the brain can affect the gut and the gut can affect the brain. So if even there was, there's been some recent studies showing that situational stress 
can change how the gut microbiome works and the composition of the gut microbiome. So if you were to become angry all of a sudden, you would change the composition of your microbiome. And the microbiome then will start producing different kinds of metabolites in response to that stress as well. So it's very interconnected. It's almost like a kind of a, a vicious feedback loop if you kind of get into unnecessary anger and depression or anxiety or any of these other kinds of mood issues because uh, they feed each other. And I believe it's kind of uh, the way that we evolved in order to help protect us, actually. Because if there was some sort of danger, there's a lion charging after you, your brain is going to tell your body, hey, there's a lion, I got to run away, I got to get out of here. And your gut is going to prepare for that as well by helping you by producing different hormones and, and chemicals and things like that so that you can actually get away. Do you have any idea that when you were uh, <laughs> specializing gastroenterology, you would open up this entire world in a way you work more with uh, some of the private patients that you work with, uh -huh. concierge patients. It's almost like you're you're more of a uh, a brain doctor for them than their regular brain doctor is. Yeah, right. Yeah, this is actually you know, uh, this and is, I know there's not a brain doctor. I'm just using that as a general <laughs> term. This is actually a really cool time uh, in medicine in general, and to be a gastroenterologist because. You know, uh, the gut in, is so central to all health and disease, and I am able to kind of help guide people through whatever the problem is, you know, whatever their issue is, whether it's brain or autoimmune disease or whatever, because they all have its, uh, their roots in the digestive tract. It's fascinating, and we're only going to continue to unravel it. So I want to talk about another area. So diet and the gut microbiome and neuroinflammation and neurodegenerative diseases Tell us about the relationship. Yeah, this that. is also fascinating. And it's super exciting because almost every week there's new literature that comes out that kind of further supports what we are talking about uh, as far as the central connection between the, the gut and the brain. And, and just if you could define what is neuroinflammation? The neuroinflammation is inflammation in the brain. So where we have you know uh, responses to a variety of things, which we can talk about like toxins or food, um, stress that can actually not only just cause inflammation in other parts of our body, but also can cause inflammation in our brain. Right. Chronic even, inflammation that if it builds up over a period of time could lead to ultimately what? What are some diseases that people would know about that at their root are linked to neuroinflammation? Alzheimer's, Parkinson's disease, multiple sclerosis, um, mood disorders like we've talked about. Um, there's associations with um, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, even autism. So it's a wide variety of... Um, even MS and Parkinson's. MS, yeah. Even diabetes we call, um, you know, uh, is a neuroinflammatory condition. Yeah, that's amazing. So going back to it, because I cut you off, uh, talk about gut microbiome, neuroinflammation, and neurodegenerative diseases. So what's fascinating is that um, when, when, we, when we feed our microbiome, through diet, the types of foods that are beneficial for us that contain fibers, they produce something called short-chain fatty acid in response to that. It's what we call a type of a metabolite. A metabolite is basically a product that the bacteria produce through the process of digestion. And these short-chain fatty acids are actually very important. I think we're going to be seeing a lot and a lot more about short-chain fatty acids in a variety of things as uh, science develops. 
Um, but uh, short-chain fatty acids are very anti-inflammatory. And what's really fascinating is that um, when short-chain fatty acids are released in the gut, in the lumen or the, you know, in the, in the actual tube of the digestive tract, it can recruit regulatory T cells to the, uh, to the gut. And as a response, these T cells can help in the remyelination process. So that's pretty fascinating if you think about it. So you eat good, healthy foods, you feed the microbiome what it wants, it, it in return will reward you by producing short-chain fatty acids. These short-chain fatty acids will recruit these anti-inflammatory cells, which will help you rebuild your nerves. And if you're out there just living your life, you're exposed to toxins in the environment, in the water. All the time. Smog. You know, we live here in, in Los Angeles. So there's a certain amount of constant sort of inflammatory damage that's happening to the body. And you're saying that when we take care of our gut microbiome and we do right by it, it's helping us reduce that inflammation inside the body. Exactly. And so one of the mantras that I, I, I talk to people, that I tell people about is that if you give your body the ingredients that it needs to do the job that it was born to do, it will do the best that it can under your circumstances in your environment. And that's exactly what's happening that we're actually seeing in science and the literature, right? So if you eat healthy foods and uh, do the right thing as far as eating the right amount of vegetables, your body is going to give you an ingredient to help fight off some of the problems that may be occurring by some other method, you know, some toxin, some toxic exposure that's maybe hurting your nervous system. So in response, you're getting basically kind of like an antidote to that just by eating the right kinds of foods. And it's not just that you teach this, you actually lived this. Yeah. You have your own personal story. A few years ago, you were a bit over 200 pounds. Your cholesterol panel was out of whack. Yeah. Your liver enzymes were overall uh, not normal. And um, your doctor told you you had fatty liver. Yeah. Right? You're a doctor and your own doctor told you you had fatty liver. Yeah. Take us back to that time. Uh, how did you get to that place and what was going on in your life? Being a physician is quite stressful. Um, and then what did you do to get out of it? I think around the time when I was kind of peeking out as far as getting, you know, uh, my weight was kind of adding up and my liver enzymes weren't getting any better. I was actually uh, a fellow in GI. So I was still, I was in my last year of training as a gastroenterologist. And it was, it was my, uh, the chief of my division that basically said, you know, hey, you got fatty liver, your liver enzymes are elevated. You know, you got to go exercise and, and watch what you're eating. And, you know, and we say that to people all the time exercise, watch Eat what you're eating. Diet, yeah. Exercise. What does that mean? You know, it's like you know, nobody really takes anything out of that. You know, they, they're not able to make meaningful change based on that kind of information. And so as I went along, I took my first job. I started to kind of feel that there was um, a disconnection with me and my own health and a disconnection in how I was actually coaching people to take control of their health as well. And I kind you of were giving felt, people advice, yeah. but you weren't necessarily following it yourself, following it myself. And I felt that the advice that I was giving was kind of like the same advice that we all know already. And they weren't really able to use that information to make as good of change as they could. This is the this is the way of conventional medicine, basically. 
Um, and I actually, to tell you the truth, got to a point where I was so frustrated with healthcare and how we do things that I was wondering whether or not I should actually even be a doctor because, you know, are we really helping people? Yeah. You know, if I get called to the hospital, somebody's having a GI bleed, I can go and save their life. And that's, you know, makes you feel really good. You help somebody, you save their life. That's the acute side of medicine. We are excellent in this country, especially of taking care of people that are acutely ill that are about to die. But what we are not good at doing is helping to keep them from getting to that point. The prevention. The prevention, right. And so I was kind of wondering what I'm going to do with my life and my career at that time. And um, actually, I always give credit to my wife because she's the one who kind of pulled me out of it. And she said, you know, here's this book. Why don't you take a look at it? And it was, uh, it was the textbook of Integrative Gastroenterology, first edition. <laughs> by, uh, by Andrew Weil? No, uh, it was a Weil series uh, Weil textbook, series. yeah. but Published by his organization. Yep, yep. Yeah. Uh, uh, Jerry Mullen was the uh, editor of that book. And I said, you know, Jerry Mullen, I know him from Johns Hopkins because uh, that was where my first job was. And so I reached out to him and I told him about my situation. He said, you know, you should look into Andrew Weil's program and uh, see if you want to sign up for the fellowship. It may give you what you're looking for. And I tell you, I, I, and I'll make this story up. I went there. I signed up. I did the fellowship. The first, the first, you know, in the first month or so, you go for what would they call an experiential week. You get to interact with Andrew Weil, and you get to, you know, interact with the other faculty, and you learn about different concepts in integrative medicine and I was like, I felt like I was just reborn again, like a breath of fresh air just was blown into my whole being. You know, I was doing yoga at sunrise, something I never thought I'd even think about doing in my life, you know, and uh, learning about all different kinds of ways to help people you know, from a, a whole body experience uh, perspective. Not looking at the body as a group of isolated organs. Yeah, as just a whole interconnected, intricate system. And I started applying these concepts to my own health within the first month or so of starting this fellowship. And it was like just butter melting, you know, the fat, the weight, my 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 mental my state of mental well-being my energy level all of that changed and within you know 3 or 4 months i lost uh like 35 40 pounds wow and so you know so i tell people that it's not real it's it's not really a not hard only did you lose the weight what i'm hearing from you more importantly than that is that you were feeling completely different yeah it all goes together and uh it's not necessarily a hard process to do, but it's a hard process to understand what you need to do and how to do it the right way. And so I take that message to people that I talk to all the time that, you know, uh, I'll show them a picture of me before uh, I did any of these changes to myself and I show them a picture after and it's two years, right? But that two years is the education process that I put myself through. The actual changes we're like three or four months. Right. And and I think that goes back to behavior change and anything is that somebody can tell you exactly what to do, but if you don't understand why it's important, yeah, you won't keep it up. Yeah. Because not everything happens immediately. So if you understand the education, then when it comes to that intersection of 
you're at your office or you're at the hospital and somebody brings, you know, donuts or these things or whatever, then it's like, okay, I'm not going to do this just based on discipline because discipline alone will only take you so far. At a certain point in time, discipline always fails. It's that I'm choosing to do this. Yeah, I can have a donut if I want to. And you know what? Maybe I'll have a small little bit instead of eating the whole thing. I'll take off a little thing and I'll feel that nourishment from that that reminds me of of, of the sugary foods. But then right afterwards, I'm going to have the salad. I'm going to do this. I'm going to go train. It's the education that is the that bridges the gap between the the knowing and the doing. And I think the important thing is to consider that when we make lifestyle changes, it's not for 10 days or 30 days or two months. It's for your life. That's why they're called lifestyle changes it's for your life. And that's the key thing to remember that we're playing the long game here. We're not trying to survive for 10 days. We're trying to survive for our lifetime, for our lifetime and be as healthy as we can for our lifetime. And there's no rush. It doesn't have to be done in 10 days or 30 days or three months. Take your time. I rather you, I rather somebody make one change a week and go real slow rather than try to make 50 changes in a week and and feel overwhelmed and quit. So you were at this uh, retreat and not only were you changing your body, but your mind was opening up and you're yeah. like, wow, I'm understanding now this interplay of of how interconnected it is. Yeah. Um, and I can see this vision of how I want to practice in the future. Uh, but because you were going through these changes yourself, what, what would you say was one of the hard things there? You know, this was over a few months, mm -hmm. a few years, as you were saying, what was something hard that then gave you, that you, that you dealt with? What was something hard that you dealt with that gave you a better understanding of how to help your patients with that in the future? I think, um, one of the hard things was, uh, resisting the, cravings for the things that you used to have before. Mm. Kind of what we were talking about uh, in the beginning of the conversation, you know, about comfort foods and things like that, how your brain really kind of uh, can drive eating behaviors. But one of the important things that I helped myself realize is that just because you, you're, you feel that your inner core craves something doesn't mean that you have to actually eat it. And also sometimes your gut, there could be gut dysbiosis. There could be elevated yeah. levels of uh, yeast or other types of things in the gut microbiome that could also have their own cravings. Yeah, exactly. Do you see that sometimes? I see that all the time. And, uh, and you know, that may be part of the mechanism by which when you change your diet and you change the composition of the microbiome and what they're actually producing, that you feel that those cravings go away. You start craving other things. So sometimes people say like, I have a sweet tooth. Yeah. It's like, well, do you have a sweet tooth or does your gut microbiome sweet have gut. a sweet <laughs> gut? Are there little bacteria that's inside of there that's just chomping at the bits waiting to get it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, you know, one of the things that I did a lot that I tell people actually, I felt accelerated my weight loss was I brought in mindfulness and meditation into my regimen. And that's one thing that I teach people about um, when they're trying to lose weight as well. And it seems kind of funny, you know, you're saying, oh, well, resist the cravings, don't eat this, don't eat that. But it's hard to do just by mentally saying, don't eat that. You know you shouldn't drink that Coca-Cola, but 
you may want to because that's just a habit that you're used to. Um, you know, uh, but if you kind of interweave into your routine, deep breathing exercises, meditative practice, little by little, because it's hard to go, you know, and sit for 30 minutes on, you know, in the beginning, you kind of start tuning your body in to being, you know, grounded in the moment. And I felt that for me, when I did that, I was able to have better control over my decisions. And so I think that also helped and that helped kind of um, tone down, you know, uh, how reactive or responsive you were to a variety of different, you know, scenarios where there was food at a party or snacks or soda or whatever. And now I can't even imagine drinking uh, Coca-Cola, you know, like it's like and even if I did, it would taste disgusting to me. You know, it's like I, I, I was the kind of guy who used to put two Splendas in the coffee thinking that Splenda was better for me because it's not sugar. Not even I was, you know, a practicing physician, you know, not even realizing that Splenda is, is, is worse then, Tell us why it's yeah. worse on this topic here. There might be some people that are listening that are thinking like, whoa. Yeah, put that Splenda down right now. <laughs> what is, what is uh, I don't know if you know uh, a lot, but what are some of the reasons why Splenda is worse? Splenda is, is almost like double sugar, uh, you know, and it may not give you the calories that sugar does, but it messes up how your whole metabolism works and actually makes the microbiome imbalanced as well. And so we think we're doing something good because we're talking about calories and, and sugar-free. But on the other hand, we're actually continuing to feed the fire, and it might even be worse than actual sugar. So, you know, uh, so I went from a two Splenda in your coffee kind of a thing to no sugar whatsoever in my coffee. And actually now I'm able to get the benefits of coffee, uh, whereas before... I may have thought I was getting the benefits of it, but I'm not because coffee can actually be a health food if you have a, a, a good quality, you know, organic, toxin-free, mold-free coffee. Going back to mindfulness and meditation, I'm yeah. so glad you mentioned that because uh, I have one of my close friends right now, um, I, in conjunction with the functional medicine doctor that was in his area in New Jersey, we've designed a protocol for him. And he's been on that protocol and then he hit sort of a plateau. He was like, okay, I was losing weight and they were fixing some fatty liver stuff, dysbiosis in the gut. There was elevated levels of yeast, some nutrient, nutrient deficiencies. And, um, and then he hit a plateau. And then about three months, two or three months ago, he started including in meditation and mindfulness. Yeah. And then out of the blue, not out of the blue, but he started noticing that plateau had been lifted and he started dropping weight again. And his goal was, he definitely did want to lose weight and be fit, uh, but of course he wanted to feel better too. So he felt better, he's losing the weight. So I'm so glad that you mentioned the meditation and the mindfulness because we all have a default neural network and our brain has spent a lot of time being good at going down certain path uh, growing up, mm -hmm. whether that's the associations with certain foods or how we get angry or how he responds to stressors in our life. And when you are bringing in meditation and mindfulness, you are getting a chance to decide, do I wanna ski down that hill again that goes off a cliff and doesn't get me anywhere good? Or do I wanna go down a new path? So for your patients, do you, how do you recommend that they 
incorporate it in? How do we take meditation and mindfulness from being like, hey, just eat healthy mm-hmm. to actually being practical and integrated into our lives? Yeah. So, you know, it's it's one thing just like, you know, I was saying before we say eat healthy exercise it doesn't really mean as much if uh, you say meditate because most people will be like, well, I don't really even know what that means. You know, I, I, I can't do that. So what I do is I actually, I'll talk to them about the importance of meditation and mindfulness, and I'll actually take them through uh, a simple relaxing breath. The one that I like the best as far as being able to teach people in the office and um, help them get started is the four, seven, eight breath. So that's where you breathe in through your nose to a count of four, you hold it in your belly to a count of seven, and then you breathe it out through your mouth to a count of eight. And I tell them, you know, because most people say, I don't have time. I don't have time to meditate. I'm busy. I'm a businessman or businesswoman. I'm running around. I said, well, you got 60 seconds? You, can you give me 60 seconds in a day? If you got 60 seconds, which I know you got 60 seconds because everybody has 60 seconds to spare, just do four of these breaths in the morning and four of these breaths in the evening. Just start with that because that's not going to be like what you – ultimately need for your whole life because but it's a place where you can start it's a place where you can build from and you will find that once you do this for a few weeks or a month that you have this overall feeling of calmness in your body even when you're not doing the breath it just kind of somehow gets into your core being and then you you, then you'll find that you'll start using this breath before you walk into a meeting, before you get on an airplane, if you're nervous about flying, before you have a big, you know, business meeting, you know, a teleconference to to have a big, you know, uh, a deal make, you know, deal made uh, for your business, and you'll find that you're able to think clearly and make better decisions when you do that, and then you'll start realizing that hey, this this little breath that I'm doing is actually good for me. I wanna maybe I wanna up the game a little bit. I'm going to try yoga. I'll try Tai Chi. I'll try Qigong. I'll do, I'll buy a CD on meditation. I'll listen to a guided meditation. And you just kind of build and build from that. And I know that works because this is what I did in my own life. I started with the four, seven, eight breath. It was simple. It was easy to do. I could do it in my car in the parking lot before I walk in the hospital. Well, let's, it's let's, sixty seconds. Let's you know? do uh, let's do one <laughs> round right now. Okay, there's no better time than the present. Let's get the people on the podcast to do it. Uh, obviously, if you're driving, keep don't your eyes don't open. do it while you're driving. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, can you take us through it? Yeah. So, um, uh, I'll just do it. I'll do it like you're my patient in the yeah, office. Totally. So usually I tell people to sit up straight in the chair, have their feet planted on the ground, and just close your eyes. Uh, and usually we tell people to keep their tongue to the roof of their mouth. It's considered the yogic position. It's just a relaxing place. And you take a nice deep breath in through your nose, and then you're going to blow it out through your mouth uh, noisily. So you breathe in quietly, you breathe out noisily. So we'll start. So take a nice deep breath in through your nose. One, two, three, four, and hold it in your belly. Two, three, four, five, six, seven. Out through your mouth noisily. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. You can do that four times to start. 
once you get used to um, the four breaths, I tell people to graduate themselves to eight breaths. And uh, after you're done the eight breaths, just sit there calmly, breathe in and out through your nose normally, like you normally would, and just concentrate on your breath. You know, Andy Weil teaches us to just focus on the breath, focus on the breath. That's your only job, focus on the breath. You'll find your mind wandering off, thinking about what you got to do next. You're a human being. That's what's going to happen. That's what your brain wants to do is to scan the surroundings and think about what's next. But you're retraining your brain. So you just gently tap it on the shoulder and say, right now we're focusing on the breath. I'll get to that later. I'm breathing right now. And you do that for as long as you want. You know, if you got to go in five minutes, you got to go in five minutes. Do that for a couple minutes. And then just slowly open your eyes. Appreciate where you are. It's actually kind of a funny sensation. You're sitting there and, you know, you're looking, if you're sitting in your car, uh, that, you know, it feels different. You're sitting in your car when you just appreciate that, you know, I'm this one person, I'm sitting here and I'm still as opposed to just, oh, jumping in the car, you know, I'm here and jumping out of the car. It's your mindset on life and how you interact with the environment is totally different. Yeah, you're present. You're present. You're present to the circumstances yeah. and the surrounding. You're here. I had a mentor that I always say is that, you know, getting overwhelmed is falling for an illusion because you can only ever deal with one thing at a time. But when we're overwhelmed, we're in our head, we're in the past, we're in the future, and we're trying to jump around it's like as if 13 people were surrounding you and you were in the middle of a circle and they're all trying to have a conversation with you. Mm -hmm. You can only have a conversation with one person. Mm -hmm. So when we're present and we ground ourselves through this breath, other mindfulness practices, thank you for taking us through that, by the way, um, we just remember the ultimate truth, which is there's no past, there's no future. All we have is this moment. Yeah, I remember I heard the Dalai Lama speak a few years ago. It was probably one of the greatest things that I've ever experienced and. Somebody asked him um, how fast, uh, you know, his time. And he says, it's already gone. It's already gone. It's already gone. It's already gone. He was just doing like that, just snapping his fingers. And so that kind of really hits home the point that the only time is now because everything else is the past and the past is gone. So if we are focused on the past, we're missing out on the present. And if we're focusing on the future, we're also missing out on the present. And your future is going to be different if you're missing out on today, right now, because that's the only time you can influence what could happen in the future is in the present moment. And people always, uh, you know, people sometimes will tell me, you know, when they're in my office, Doc, I got IBS. Why are you talking to me about mindfulness or meditation? What does that have anything to do with it? I said that, I, you know, and I usually say that has everything to do with it because, the mind and the gut are connected to each other. And if we can teach you how to calm the mind, we can calm the gut. And the whole interaction, the interplay that we've been talking about is just much more stable. And it's another ingredient that you're adding into your toolbox to kind of help optimize everything. And it's not just me saying that. There is science showing that meditation can help with uh telomerase levels, which is the enzyme that keeps the telomeres long, helps keep your telomeres intact, um, helps with the methylation in your, of your DNA, helps with your microbiome. It's, it helps with everything, you know? So um, doing this one thing that seems completely unrelated is actually very related. 
And that's, that's actually the, the fun part of uh, understanding how biology works these days. I love it. So there's universal rules to follow when it comes to like gut health. And we'll talk about those big picture, but personalization is super important too. Super. Yeah. And, and really the future of the gut microbiome is all about personalization. And how do you think about personalization or how can our listeners think about personalization when it comes to their gut health? You know, should everybody be eating the same diet? Uh, how can people begin to figure out what works for them and how to better take care of their gut? Yeah, that's a great question. It's one of my favorite topics because each one of us uh, is only 10 to 20% similar in our microbiomes. So you think about how many billion people there are on the planet. Each one of us are only 10 to 20% similar. So how many different combinations of microbes are there in, in, in the world? Crazy ton amount, right? And so when we say you have to eat this way or you have to eat that way, these are just general blanket statements about concepts that people feel are important for nutrition. But it really may have nothing to do with you yourself and your own health because we are all so different. There was a recent study that kind of hit this, uh, hit the nail on the head uh, just in uh, mid-June and what they did was they looked at the microbiomes of people. It was a small study, but it was very interesting. Um, and they checked their microbiome every day during the study period. And they found that they could predict what changes would occur in each individual's microbiome during this time period. But that was not generalizable to the entire group. So basically, if I eat broccoli and you eat broccoli today, I may have five microbes in my gut that will do five actions as a result of that. You may have five other microbes in your gut that will make five other actions based on that broccoli. Yours may be good. Mine may be good. Mine may be bad. Yours may be good. It's different. So the broccoli we say is good for us because we know that it has certain nutrients in it. And so some things as far as nutrition are kind of universal, like vitamin C and calcium. You know, we kind of understand that these ingredients are good for us. But actually what the microbes do with each individual food in each individual person is different. So broccoli may be bad for me because maybe it does something that is not helpful for me, but maybe for you it's healthy. And so this is the personalization. You can't really say everybody should eat broccoli because... Maybe a lot of people should eat broccoli and that would make them feel better. But we don't really know for sure unless we're, unless we're finding out what's going on in the gut as a response to that and what your gut is made up of and what your gut needs. And I know there's some testing and it's getting better and better, but yeah. I have not yet seen a test that's like definitive yeah. on that. So how do we, I think some people are listening to that and they're feeling like, oh man, that sounds like I thought I'm doing the right thing. Overwhelming. It's yeah. overwhelming because how do I figure out all the different components that are there? So uh, I want to talk about testing in a second, but if somebody doesn't have testing, um, can they start just paying attention to their own body's responses? Exactly. That's what I was going to say. So, you know, I tell people all the time that the best doctor is your body. So you don't need a food sensitivity test, for example, if you know that this food makes you have some sort of reaction. doesn't matter what the test shows. If the test shows that you don't have a reaction, 
you're still not going to eat it because you know that your body doesn't like it, right? And so what what's happening, I feel, in the nutrition world where people are saying, oh, you have to be a vegan if you want to reduce your risk of heart disease. And then on the opposite end of the spectrum, people are saying, no, 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 you, you have to be a carnivore if you, if you really want to optimize your health. Because look at me, I have muscles. And the vegans say, well, I have muscles too. But these are two totally opposite diets. How could they both be right? Well, these are these, I believe, are people that have kind of learned about their bodies and kind of biohacked their way into these groups. And so for them, that may be helpful. And for the other group, that may be helpful. But I don't know if that's helpful for me because I have to try it out in order to kind of figure that out and see what happens in your body. Ultimately, you really don't know if what you're doing is good for the short-term gain or the long-term gain unless you are doing something like, you know, like this epigenetic testing that we're seeing. So you can see that um, the if, if you're, say you're eating, you're eating a vegan diet and you did an epigenetic test um, on day one and then you did one 60 days into um, a, a straight vegan diet and you saw that your methylation load went up and actually seems to be that you're accelerating aging. Would you continue to be a vegan thinking that that's good for you? Or would you say, hang on a second, something's not right. Maybe it's the diet, maybe something in my environment, but we should figure it out. Mm. So that's what I kind of guide people through. It's really hard to know on your own just mentally what's happening in in your entire body biologically, but we can listen to the messages that our body is giving us to help guide us in the beginning if you don't have any tests. I think about this article that my uh, friend Anahat O'Connor, who writes for the New York Times, um, he wrote an article covering some of the research and a, a study on, uh, I think the articles, we'll link it in the show notes, but I probably have the title wrong, but it's something to paraphrase. It was, um, is there a right, is there the right diet for people? And they went to hunter gatherer societies all around the world, modern day uh-huh. hunter gatherer societies, like the Aborigine tribes in Australia, uh, different tribes that are in, um, South America and other places in Africa. And they said, okay, what do these people eat? Well, so there was some universal principles. They were all eating whole foods, Mm -hmm. right? They were all eating whole foods. They were not eating anything processed. And there was no sugar in the diet minus honey. Mm -hmm. If they had access to honey and they could get some honey, that was there. But in um, in terms of the breakdown of carbohydrates, fats, protein, it was all over the spectrum. You had tribes that are in South America and in Mexico that had high amounts of carbohydrates that came from corn and and other sort of starches then you had other tribes that were more almost carnivore like mm-hmm. but still had fiber in their in their diet uh, i actually went and spent time with a tribe uh in africa oh, yeah? called the tarumara tribe uh, sorry called the um samburu <laughs> tribe which are cousins of the uh maasai oh. and they drink blood from cows <laughs> yeah. they don't kill the cow but they puncture the vein and they drink blood and they drink milk and they eat a little bit of twigs and some berries here and there, but they don't even eat during the day. Yeah. Imagine what their gut microbiome looks like. And <laughs> yeah. they've been surviving. Yeah. You know, They've been a tribe for a thousand years, 900 to a thousand years. So it just shows you that people's gut microbiome can be so vast and so different. So many different types of diets with these core central themes. Whole foods, no processed foods for these tribes. They don't have access to it and definitely no sugar. Uh, that's in the diet, uh, no processed sugar. That's the, blue, the, the Blue Zones is also a very good example of that. You have many different places around the world where 
um, people are living to be a uh, hundred years old or older. And, um, you know, uh, Dan Buettner did a good job in his book, The Blue Zone Solution, and kind of mapping these areas out and uh, trying to look at what they have in common. And, you know, uh, people in different regions, parts of the world, like you're saying, eating totally different kinds of diets. But what are the common themes? And these are some of the common themes that are there. I think listening to your body is so important. I have a story that I want to share, and I wonder if you have something similar. So uh, I used to make a lot of shakes and smoothies. I don't do it as much anymore. And you kind of go through waves. You, yeah. know, you pick things back Little up phase, and yeah. you, you go through phases. <laughs> so my favorite are blueberries. So uh-huh. I eat blueberries a lot. Blueberries are great brain food. There's a ton of research on them. And then I used to, I started making my shakes with blueberries mm-hmm. and I would get so tired afterwards. I thought something was going on with my health. I didn't make the connection. And I thought something was going on with my health. And I thought, wow, something is up that I'm drinking these shakes and I get so tired. Like I crash, like I don't nap during the day. My energy is amazing. I wake up in the morning and I feel like ready to go. And then I started saying, okay, maybe there's something in this shake that I'm making. So I started isolating ingredients and trying it. And then I switched out the blueberries for uh, like, I think a small amount of like strawberries, frozen strawberries that I wanted uh-huh. to add in. Uh, and I didn't feel that same feeling. And then I made a very simplified shake with just the blueberries. And I took out the other ingredients and I got so tired afterwards. And for whatever reason, uh, and I recently was at the Institute of Functional Medicine annual conference and there was a a group that basically developed a new test. I can't remember the name, but we'll link it in the show notes that was measuring the impact of blood sugar based on your microbiome, right? How foods interact with your microbiome and how they can have different impacts on your blood sugar that was there, which is super fascinating. So I didn't do any testing and I didn't do this test, but I just know for me that when I have blended blueberries in higher amounts, I get probably a big spike in blood sugar amongst other mechanisms and I get really tired. And so I just stopped doing that. Yeah, and that's just a perfect example of how everybody's not the same, right? So that's what's happening in your body with your microbiome and your metabolism, but that might not happen in somebody else. They may have the opposite. They may get super energetic when they, when they eat blueberries. Exactly. Another reason to just pay attention to what foods work for you. Kind of like the old adage, you know, you go to the doctor, Hey doc, my hand hurts when I, when I pound it on the table. Okay. Well, don't do that. You know? (laughs) (laughs) I want to talk about the beneficial, actually I mentioned testing. Uh-huh. So let's go back to it. You've talked about this uh, this test in the beginning. Yeah. It was the test that you just referenced, the DNA methylation phenoage, was that the test that you were talking about? So, you know, uh, that that's a type that's of test. test. That's one test that's described in, in a literature. They have different names, but the concept sure. is basically the same. So when it comes to microbiome and testing foods, what are the compilation of tests that you might use uh, as a as an integrative gastroenterologist to help sometimes get a little bit more data for especially patients that are suffering with health issues. Yeah, so what I do, which is probably a little bit of a unique take on things, is that I don't look at just one test in isolation because I think you get a kind of slanted or skewed view when you do that. And the tests are really... No one of no one test gives you the full picture. Exactly, right just not there yet. But what's interesting though is when when you listen to people's history and you put that together with these results, I always see correlations, which is which is fascinating to me. And so what I'll do is I'll take you know I'll do nutritional genetics testing, I'll do microbiome testing, 
I'll do food, food sensitivity testing. We'll look for chemical exposures, chemical sensitivities. We'll look at markers of inflammation. Um, you know, some of the standard stuff like CRP, I'll do some of the advanced cardiac inflammatory markers that, you know, Cleveland Heart Lab or Quest, which is now Quest, um, has. And I will combine all of that information and sit down with it and synthesize it myself. It takes like seven or eight hours of my time outside of, you know, face to face with anybody to look at all these things and look for patterns, look for associations. And actually the most important test, which goes back to the point we were just talking about listening to your body is reviewing my notes from the appointment. appointment. Yeah. Right. So I tell people that, you know, you come in, we're spending 90 minutes together to talk, but it's not, you know, just for fun. It's actually, it's, it's a test. It's an information gathering expedition. And so I take that together with that and I see, you know, correlations all the time. And then what I do is I'll, you know, break down, you know, kind of the executive summary of each of the results just because people want to see what the actual results are. And then I'll um, give some recommendations on how to eat, taking into consideration, you know, what your sensitivities are, what your nutritional genetics are, maybe what the kind of uh, what how much imbalance or balance there is in the microbiome, how much inflammation is going on there. And we'll talk about certain supplements and things that can kind of help uh, reduce uh, some of those issues that you have, looking at what your vitamin levels are and what vitamins you may or may not need and how to optimize that in your diet and nutrition and what kind of vitamins you may need to help as well. So it's kind of like, you know, we say a whole body experience when you're doing integrative medicine, that's kind of the approach that I take as far as the testing, because you can look at your genes. That's not the full answer. You can look at the microbiome. That's not the full answer. You can look at sensitivities, not the full answer. You got to look at all of it together. You got to look at the interplay. And I think that yeah. there's a note of caution for anybody who's listening. I'm all about the democratization of testing and lab tests that's out there. Um, and there's a lot of home kits that people can get. Yeah. And I just will tell people, because people often ask me, like, what do you think of you know, you biome, or what do you think of this? And I know you biome is going through some mm. major challenges right now. I've never done the test and I don't recommend it uh, to people because I just don't have any experience with it. Um, and there's different companies that are out there that do at-home tests, biome, yeah. and there's some good information that all of them have, but they're not the complete story. Any test that tells you that's at home right now, that's gonna tell you exactly what to eat and exactly what you're sensitive to is, it's just not there. Take know? it with a grain of salt. Take too. it with a grain of salt. It doesn't mean that you can't do it, but I often recommend people go work with a practitioner like yourself or find somebody in their local area that can weave the story because half of that, half of it, or maybe even more than half of it is just listening to the patient and having them tell their story. When exactly. I was younger, I was on antibiotics a lot and then this, and then I got really stressed out because of this breakup and that's when my issues started happening. That's great insight for a practitioner exactly. uh, that, that help helps you build, personalize. That helps you build your program because if you didn't have that information, you wouldn't really know exactly how to do it. And so I think, you know, a lot of these tests are uh, looking at all the information using artificial intelligence because it's just such a massive amount, volumes and volumes of information on us. And we're relying now on the computers to tell us what the recommendations are. But that's fine. We can take that information, but I still think that you need somebody who can understand how to weave these together to really make it for you. Otherwise, you may get you know lost down the wrong track. Yeah, and people can reach out to you. We often plug uh, uh, the IFM website, 
Um, is there an integrative, you know, if somebody's not in the San Diego area, yeah. they can't find you. Is there like a database of integrative? Yeah, actually, um, uh, Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine at the University of Arizona now has a database just like IFM on their website and where can you can you search. Find doctors that are specialized in gut health. Yeah, I think you can search by location, by specialty, you know, um, by, you know, wide variety of different things. Let's go back into the topic of gut and how we can optimize our gut and some uh, separating fact and, and fiction that's out there, at least based on the research that we know. Uh, probiotics, they're everywhere now. You yeah. see them advertised on TV. They're selling them at Walmart and Costco <laughs> and other places. Uh, give us the breakdown on probiotics. I think the, the first thing to caution on is what method you're getting the probiotics in. So, you know, people, yogurt, I guess, was one of the first um, types of products that they were putting probiotics in and perhaps well-intentioned in the beginning. But now, you know, you can get a, a nice blueberry yogurt with 20 grams of sugar in it, but it's probiotic, so it's good for you, right? Not really. So you have to kind of pay attention to that. And the same thing <clears throat> has happened with kombucha because we know kombucha is a probiotic drink. It's a fermented uh, drink. Um, but there are so many different kinds of flavors and those flavors, uh, are so tasty because there's extra added sugar in them as well. Right. And that's not, uh, you know, sugar can have a lot of, again, going back to these modern day hunter gatherer societies, yeah. they're not adding sugar yeah. into, um, into their diets on a regular basis, it's just not available. And sugar can have all sorts of effect on, forget about weight gain, which we know a lot about. Uh, dental health, et cetera, it can have all sorts of disruptive effects on your gut microbiome and feeding the wrong certain types of bacteria that could be um, pathogenic. Exactly. And the insulin spikes can cause inflammation in your brain as well. Right. So um, going back to probiotics, we know that kombucha, yogurt, these are the things to worry about. You know, there's a lot of questions and there's a lot that we don't know about probiotics. Do they make their way down to the to the gut? There's some research that's out there that probiotics in the way that we're using them today, they often act a little bit more like an enzyme. So they're not recolonizing mm -hmm. because they're literally a drop in the ocean. You know, when you're taking even like a, you know, 50 billion count probiotic, yeah. it's not going in there and repopulating that bacteria, right? Yeah. Your gut microbiome is trillions of bacteria. And so it's a drop in the ocean, 50 billion compared to trillions of bacteria that's out there. So, so are there uh, probiotics that you recommend people can take for maintenance or is it really all just about personalizing for that individual? I think it's personalized because in some situations, probiotics might not be very helpful. If you have a SIBO, for example, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Sometimes if they're really mild symptoms, you may actually get some improvement with probiotics. But a lot of times people, when they take the probiotics and they're really very bloated and they feel uncomfortable all the time, it may just make things worse. I kind of explain it to people as like, you know, you have 50 people in a small room and the fire marshal knocks on the door and says, hey, this is a fire hazard. There's too many people in here. You have two ways to kind of get those people out. One would be to open the door and say, can, you, can some of you please leave? And the other way would be to open the door and have, a, have 150 people bum rush everybody in there and shove them out. But at the end of the day, you don't know that if you put those extra 150 people in, which is the probiotic, the pill that you're taking, 
um, whether they're actually going to leave or not. And maybe the room is even more crowded and you have even more problems and the fire marshal is even more upset. Mm. So, you know, uh, that's how some people uh, can actually feel a little bit worse when they're taking the probiotics. And so it may be better in that circumstance to try to find the balance, to try to address the dysbiosis first and then reseed or re-inoculate the microbiome with good, helpful probiotics. And, you know, and some people need it for a short period of time, like when they're taking antibiotics or they, you know, went to Mexico and got sick uh, with diarrhea or something. And some people find benefit from taking them regularly. But you're exactly right in that we don't know that those probiotics are actually being ingested, making it down there and planting their flag and living there. A lot of them may be passers-by. And that's not necessarily bad either because when, when you have visitors come through, the ecosystem changes as well. And so if you have a guy come through that changes the ecosystem for the better, then you know, you're know you letting that inner garden that's already there thrive a bit better. And some of these spore-based probiotics can be helpful in doing that as well. Right. There's a company I think called uh, Micro... Microbiome Labs. Microbiome Labs. Yeah. Shout out to them because yeah. a lot of the practitioners that we look up to, we have no affiliation with them, uh, do like some of their spore-based probiotics because they can actually help uh, and colonize there. Exactly. And some of these spore-based probiotics help some of the more anti-inflammatory bacteria thrive and flourish. And so as a side effect of that guy being there, you may have uh, cultivation of uh, more of this anti-inflammatory environment. And uh, they can also be, they're more resilient against antibiotics and other things as well because they're in a spore form. Yeah, no, that's great. I think the, the other thing about uh, probiotics is that they're very they're very sensitive to, yeah. to heat and other things like that. So when you're buying probiotics at Costco or Walmart or these other places and you don't really know the way that it's been stored or how it's been made, I tell people look for like the premium companies, mm -hmm. you know, the the, the nutraceutical companies, yeah. even though it's a little bit more expensive, you're going to actually get more imp impact. So companies like Metagenics, Pure Encapsulations, uh, um, uh, Therabiotic by Claire Labs, you know, j there's a ton of them that are out there that a lot of the practitioners use and you can still find them, you know, in a lot, in a lot of places. There's a cool new company also is actually a San Diego startup. Then they're actually doing microbiome sequencing and mm -hmm. using that to create a precision probiotic for you based on what the composition of your microbiome is. Do you want to is. give them a plug if people want to Yeah, Sun, Sun Genomics. It's a really cool company, um, right? They're locally in San Diego and uh, you do stool sample just like you would for any other microbiome test. You'll get some of the information back on the microbiome so you can understand, you know, uh, how diverse or resilient your microbiome is and what's going on there. So you get that benefit. And then as a result of that, they have their own uh, strains of microbes and they make a probiotic for you based on, you know, some of the health issues that you may report. Have you done it for any of your patients? Um, I'm, I'm doing it. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm doing it on myself, actually, too. I'm waiting for my results to come back. Okay, so don't order it. <laughs> Follow uh, Dr. Marvin Singh on Instagram. Yeah. And if you can post about it there, yeah. then let us know, is this real? Is this not, you know? I, I and, think it, it's there's a lot of uh, very fascinating stories, people having a uh, big improvement in their, you know, bowel symptoms and things like that even chronic pains that they were having, because we know that the microbiome can actually help um, modulate pain sensations. So a lot of people are reporting that as well. So 
It's a very exciting. Will, new, will you new keep technology. our audience posted on your Instagram page? For sure. Uh, can you mention your Instagram handle? Oh, my Instagram handle is at Dr. Marvin Singh. Okay. Awesome. Uh, what's the relationship between exercise and our gut health? Um, very good question. Uh, exercise, people that are more athletic and exercise routinely actually uh, have a more diverse, resilient microbiome. And so uh, by exercising regularly, it doesn't have to be like high intensity, you know, training or, or, you know, running 10 miles a day, just moving, you know, moving regularly, getting up, getting that blood flowing that uh, we've seen actually uh, can cause your microbiome to shift towards being stronger. And so, you know, it's fascinating how we talk about exercise is good for heart health, Exercise is good for heart health, get your heart pumping, get your blood flowing. But exactly why is exercise good for your heart health? Exercise in a large part may be good for your heart health because it affects changes in your microbiome, which releases chemicals to your body that may improve heart health. Mm. And And that interacts with your genome. So we can also see that you know, that your uh, degree of methylation across your genome may be improved as well. So this is how the whole body kind of really interacts and works with each other. Super fascinating. And then, of course, the, that has impact on the brain. Exactly. Through uh, BDNF. Yep. Can you explain what that is? So uh, brain-derived uh, nat- natural... Uh, neurotropic neurotropic factors sorry (laughs) a little tongue-tied um but yeah so that also uh they that helps influence um how uh you feel mentally and your cognitive ability yeah focus i mean everybody knows that you work out people who work out regularly get that euphoria feeling that euphoria and you sort of like ready for your day um i was always active growing up but i never really did any strength training until more recently. And in that process of doing strength training, I've just found it's a whole other level of mood. You know, just even simple things like like doing doing deadlifts and squats and other things like that. I used to hike, I used to paddleboard, I play sports uh, growing up, tennis and soccer. But um, when you're really moving those muscles, I just get so much of a brain boost uh, from it that um, it's a little bit of a, a good addiction. Yeah, yeah, you get a boost of serotonin produced <laughs> from the microbes, GABA is increased, you know, you're feeling good. Also, you're getting more oxygenation to your blood and your tissue and your brain, um, you know, so everything feels good. So we talked about some of the complexities with probiotics. Huh? Um, what about prebiotics? You know, are those a little bit safer? Um, there's a lot of gut dysbiosis out there, so some people do have gut challenges and they need to have it addressed by somebody like yourself or another integrative practitioner that can help them really dial in their gut. But when it comes to uh, prebiotics, uh, first, what are they? And then do you recommend them and what kinds do you recommend to uh, the general public listening? So prebiotics are basically, you can think of them as the food for the probiotics. Probiotics are the actual microbes, the actual organisms, the bacteria. Prebiotics are basically like the fertilizer for those bacteria. And so sometimes a lot of probiotics uh, are actually symbiotics, which means that they have combination of probiotics and prebiotics together. Because uh, when you take them together, you may um, allow these bacteria to grow a little bit better, to actually have better effect in the, in the gut. 
The only thing that I caution people about when they're taking prebiotics is that sometimes, you know, uh, it can be too strong if you're, if your gut's not ready for it. Um, if you have too much dysbiosis and bloating and uh, issues like that, that when you take, uh, you know, high doses of these prebiotics, you can get an exacerbation of those symptoms. And so one way to do it would be to slowly sort of ramp up. Very slowly, bit. yeah. So people are taking like, what are some of the prebiotics that are out there? Like kimchi, sauerkraut, what are, and then there's like other fibers, like acacia fiber. Acacia fiber is a big one, yeah. Um, so, you know, when, when people take these things, I tell them, you know, just because the dose is written on the container doesn't mean that that's the dose you have to start with. Right. And it's okay to take a, a small fraction of that just to kind of test the waters when you're starting off. So if it says two tablespoons is a dose, then maybe start with half a teaspoon, see how it goes and just kind of slowly, slowly kind of ramp it up. Just like with anything in life, you know, you want to make all these lifestyle changes in your life. You're not going to do all 10 of them on the first day. You're going to start and you're going to slowly build up to it. And what that allows uh, to happen is that your microbiome is going to get used to that and it won't be so overwhelming. Um, so it's kind of like, you know, you want to put some fertilizer on your lawn, you're going to do you're going to do it in, in a stepwise fashion. You're not just going to take the whole bag and just dump it on, you know, one part of the lawn and say, okay, grow now. It's, it's not going to work out very well. So let the body kind of gradually get adapted to that. And same kind of things with foods. So if you want to start eating more healthy, eating more vegetables, I mean, if you ate cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, asparagus, and cabbage for the first time all in one meal, you're going to get bloated probably and you're not going to feel good and you'll be nauseous and you'll say that doctor doesn't know what he's talking about. I ate all these vegetables and I feel worse. Well, take it easy. You know, you don't have to eat everything on the first day. Try a little bit of a few and just kind of slowly ramp your, your way up and your body will just find this new normal. Digestive enzymes. Yeah. What do you think about them? I think they're very helpful, um, uh, especially when people have... Uh, SIBO or bacterial overgrowth, um, they need a little bit of an extra boost to kind of help break down um, the the food so that they can be digested better. Um, so I like them. I tell people all the time to try digestive enzymes. The other thing that I tell people about is digestive bitters because digestive bitters are also kinds of herbs that kind of help stimulate acid production in the stomach and help uh, with a natural digestive enzyme process in your own body. And uh, you can take those as well. And I find uh, a lot of great benefit in bloating and digestion and things like that. Because part of the problem with why people have problems with digesting is because uh, a lot of people have low acid from you know, a variety of reasons, uh, most commonly being taking the antacid medications. And just eating an overall processed food diet that suppresses the acid. Exactly. Yeah. So you can see how it's it's uh, multi-pronged with almost everything we're talking about. So you can take digestive enzymes, but if you're still taking the antacid and you're stressed out, then you're still you still may have a problem with digestion. It all depends on how much influence each factor is having, but they all play a role in that. And so chewing your food very carefully, uh, making sure that you're not swallowing that whole chunk of broccoli or meat or whatever you're eating is very important. The digestion starts as soon as you put the food in your mouth. And then, you know, uh, if you have suppressed levels of acid, some things like the enzymes and the bitters can also help uh, with processing the food and, and taking it easy in eating, not trying to eat the whole meal in five minutes. Just think of uh, your stomach as, you know, uh, a, a contractor doing work on your house. 
You know, he's he's got a job to do. He knows how to do the job. He wants to do the job. That's what he was born to do. That's what he that's what he's good at. But if you walk in the door and say, I need new floors, I need you to paint the whole house, I need a new roof, fix all the plumbing, uh, put in uh, five new toilets, and I need it done in two hours, there's no way he's going to be able to do that. You know, you might give the guy a heart attack by telling him that, right? So that's why if you try to eat your whole meal in five minutes, you're going to get a stomach ache, you'll get nauseous, you'll get bloated, and then you'll maybe think, oh, maybe it's because I ate something bad, I got a food sensitivity. And maybe you do, but... Maybe you just need to be a little bit more mindful about how you're chewing and how you're eating and actually enjoying the meal. Because like we said, eating is a multidimensional experience. So if uh, you just take that time to appreciate that this is food that you're eating for your health, to nourish your body so that it can be strong, so that it can help you back, then you're slowing down that whole process and your body is going to do with the food what it knows it needs to do. Uh, with enzymes and bitters, any recommendation of, uh, like a broad spectrum enzyme that people could try? I know there's enzymes for like, yeah. to make it easier for people who sometimes eat gluten yeah. or dairy, but is there a company that you like that you would want to mention? I, I kind of favor pure encapsulations. Pure encapsulations. Yeah. I, I like, I like their enzyme uh, line. And you can find, I think they... They sell, you can find those usually online. They mostly sell to practitioners. Sometimes you can find them on Amazon. Yeah. But just be careful on Amazon. Sometimes they sell fake stuff. And I think a lot of these companies are worried about that. Um, And then the bitters, do you just recommend that people uh, look up those bitters online and then go purchase them from the store? Or they're actually digestive bitters that they can buy that sort of like put together? The ones that I like the best actually um, are in the tincture form. Mm -hmm. So, um, and the brand that I just personally like the best is... uh, it's called Herb Farm, H-E-R-B-P-H-A-R-M. And I just, as, uh, as one of the brands that was introduced to me, you know, during my training and that I've used myself and I've used with other patients uh, very successfully, um, you know, there may be considerations because they're, uh, some of them are blends of herbs and some of them are just individual herbs. So somebody may have, you know, some cross-reactivity with chamomile if they have a ragweed allergy or something like that. So you know, just don't blindly go and take them. Just look at what's in the, uh, what's on the label as far as what's in it, because you may have a problem if you, you know, didn't pay attention to the label. But, um, one of the digestive bitters that I start people on, um, is tincture of dandelion, actually, believe it or not. Yeah. And I have had so many people, you know, uh, come in, uh, saying that nothing helps my bloating. I, uh, no matter what I try, I've tried enzymes, I've tried this, I've tried that, we've treated SIBO, I still have bloating, and I say, let's try a little tincture of dandelion. And so many so many times people tell me that, wow, that, that dandelion is what actually did it, you know? Wow. So, you and know. this company, Herb. Herb Farm, yeah. Herb Farms, they yeah. make a dandelion one? They make a dandelion one. Okay, great. Yeah, and you can find them. There's a lot of companies that make these uh, tinctures. Um, uh, but, uh, that's the one that I like the best because a lot of their stuff is organic. And you talked about to improve, uh, stomach acids, mm-hmm. you know, slowing down, chewing, you know, really focusing, allowing yourself the time to, to eat that's there. Um, do you recommend that patients sometimes supplement with, uh, HCL or they take other types of things to help build up their stomach acids? Sometimes I do. Yeah. A lot of times, uh, if they're having stomach pain, I like to make sure that they don't have an ulcer or gastritis or something like that first. 
Because I've seen a because lot of people. Because um, because ACL the ACL, can aggravate yeah, yeah. I've seen a lot of people actually, and I guess that's maybe my bias because I'm a gastroenterologist and I can do endoscopy. But I've seen a lot of people actually with stomach ulcers and inflammation in the stomach, and they're having stomach problems, symptoms, and um, it's because they're taking you know uh, hydrochloric acid with their enzymes, and so you kind of have to kind of make sure that there's that it's not actually causing or going to cause a problem for you when you take it. But uh, if you don't have any kind of issue like that, you're not having any kind of abdominal pain or anything, um, acid uh, can definitely be uh, helpful. And the reason why I like pure encapsulations I mentioned earlier is because they have a digestive enzyme with or without acid. And so it's kind of, it's the same blend, but one is plus betaine and one is without. And so, you know, people can have the option to choose whether they want to try it or not. I think one of the key things we teach in functional integrative medicine is that when you're taking these, you have to listen to what your body is saying. So if you start feeling that warmth feeling or burning feeling in your stomach, that's basically your body saying you've reached the dose that you should be at and maybe want to just take a little bit less. <laughs> this, is the, this is the benefit of working with a practitioner yeah. uh, because they will help you steer the ship. It's not that you just get a protocol and you stay on that forever. Yeah. You have to kind of steer the ship a little bit and navigate the waters and personalize it. Or, oh wow, you had a bad reaction to that. Okay, let's drop that off. Let's br- let's bring this back in. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about fecal matter transplants. And okay, you know, recently they've been in the news because the FDA came out uh, after somebody had recently passed away from a research trial. They're only allowed in the U.S. From my understanding, for treating like C diff. And then under research, uh, somebody has an IRB and they're doing research on the items. And I don't know the full details, but I was talking about it with Dr. Mark Hyman. He was saying, oh, the person that had passed away, you know, that company wasn't doing rigorous screening in the research process and really should have been. But then the FDA just kind of like clamped down on the whole thing. Um, but there is some, you know, some people are excited about it and they feel like we need more you know, we continue to need more research on it, but there's other countries where it is allowed. You know, people can do it in um, the UK, Europe, yeah, Europe and the Caribbean. What are your thoughts on that in the future of uh, looking into fecal matter transplants to solve some of the gastroenterological uh, issues that people have? Yeah, I think um, uh, there are a lot of countries doing it for outside of C. diff, but I, I don't think we're 100% there yet in understanding exactly what's going to happen when you do this in the long term. Remember, like in the beginning of, of, of our conversation, I was talking about lifestyle measures are for the long game, not necessarily for the immediate game. In uh, the setting of C. diff, it's very helpful because it helps with the short-term goal of stopping the infection. You can think of these fecal uh, transplants as just a ginormous uh, probiotic enema. Right. It's basically what you're doing. And so you're dumping all of these bacteria from stool uh, uh, in the colon. You do a colonoscopy, and you can you can actually do it the other way too. But I generally try to do it uh, the the bottom way because I just feel like it's it's nicer to the patient. <laughs> and also, but, you don't risk any uh, issues with SIBO potentially if that yeah. bacteria gets in parts of the body that shouldn't have it. Yeah. So so you know so uh, I've and done just for anybody that's not aware. This is literally the transplant of a stool yeah. from a healthy person over to somebody who's having challenges in their gut health. 
that that person, the healthy person has been screened and doesn't have like E. coli and other issues or has a good diversity of bacteria that's there. Well, that's the problem. So what is a healthy person? Yeah. And, you know, so back in the day, meaning like five years ago, what we used to do is we'd say it had to be a, a friend or a close friend or a family member. Right. And so we would then you would test a stool for parasites, HIV, hepatitis, all those kind of things. But we weren't doing microbiome sequencing on these um, sure. on these stools. Now there's stool banks, so we don't even do that anymore. You order it, it comes, they come in like little six, uh, uh, you make six uh, little 60cc syringes. Yeah. You do the colonoscopy and you squirt, squirt, squirt. But we're relying, we're re- literally relying on the companies that are yeah. that we're buying this from to do their due diligence. And are they sequencing the entire microbiome of that donor stool and understanding what the implications are? Because, you know, uh, you know, maybe call me a little paranoid, but we know that there is association with cancers and autoimmune disease and all kinds of things, the brain disorders. Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, all of these things we're talking about as far as the gut being related to that. So if I take a stool transplant for anxiety, am I now going to get, uh, am I now at higher risk for getting lupus in 10 years? Mm. Do I know that for sure? I don't think we know that for sure. And so I, you know, I always tell people, you know, just like we're always looking for one cure, one treatment, you know, a pill for that ill, something that can just fix my problems. And maybe the thing will fix your problem in the short term, but we don't really know enough yet about what happens in the long term. And what happened a month or so ago was that two people died um, from a stool transplant in this country, which was done for C. diff. They both happened to come from the same donor, which had a resistant strain of a bad kind of E. coli. And they both died as a result of that. So that just proves that, you know, these things aren't really being rigorously screened for those kind of things. And so we may be taking something uh, even for an indicated purpose like C. diff, but we don't really know what the long-term implications are or even the short-term implications if there's something bad comes out of that. And do you know more about that situation? Were they getting that... um were they getting that, uh, those two individuals who, who died, a very unfortunate situation, was the clinic or the university or wherever it was being done, did they u- get the stool from a stool bank? I, my understanding from the report that I read that it came from the same place. The same, same, same place. donor from same the same donor, place. but it yeah. wasn't a stool bank that does like more screening? I, uh, I, I don't know that any stool bank does more screening or less screening. I mean, Open Biome, I believe, is the main one that we use, at least in San Diego. I don't know if there are others in other parts in the country, but literally all you do when, you, when you're when you ordering a colonoscopy with fecal transplant is you just, you know, you order it, the the, the nurses in the endoscopy center will, you know, make sure we acquire this, the stuff from there. I mean, it's, it's packaged very nicely. Everything is, is legit, but uh, as far as how rigorously is it screened? Are they screening every, uh, we're not, I'm not seeing like a microbiome report if, right. if that's what you're looking for, yeah. you know, I'm not like, okay, doctor, we're going to do a stool transplant. Here's the microbiome of this donor and all the resistance profiles to some of the organisms. We're not getting that. No, man. no, not at all. Um, interestingly enough, I want to ask you about colon hydrotherapy because uh, one of the places that does fecal uh, transplants overseas, 
they it's a, which is a 10 day process that they do. And I'm always researching and learning about these items. They have you do a series of colon hydrotherapy for anybody who's listening and not familiar that they're basically putting a, a tube up the colon through the rectum into the colon and they're flooding it with water. And then they're taking it out and they're doing a series of putting water in, taking it out. And there's a lot of different thoughts about this. And this kind of became, I mean, enemas have been throughout history. People mm-hmm. have been doing enemas throughout history, but this game became a little bit popular. Uh, I don't know the origin, but in the States, it's sort of like a alternative health mm-hmm. treatment. But at this clinic, they're doing colon hydrotherapy as a way to get rid of all the bacteria that's in the colon before they do the transplant. So that made me think people who are doing colon hydrotherapy regularly to just try for maintenance or for dealing with issues or challenges, are they getting rid of good bacteria that their colon needs inside of there? Do you have any thoughts on that? Great point. Are you getting rid of good ones and are you putting in good ones? Those are, you know, when you're doing the stool transplant and are you really getting rid of them? Because what you're doing is basically like, it's like if your water heater floods in your house, you get a huge flood and it's a big mess. But at the end of the day, when you clean it up, your house is still there. I mean, your floors are there, your walls are there. Um, these these populations, these colonies of bacteria may be reduced dramatically when you're doing the hydrotherapy. But, you know, if there are even a cluster of these microbes left, they're going to grow back. So what are you ultimately accomplishing, number one? And number two, is colon hydrotherapy actually good for you in the long run? Right. Because and I guess that's the question. Because just down the street and up the street, yeah, there's all these places here in Santa Monica that are doing colon hydrotherapy. Yeah, and I will say there was a period of time where I don't know what I had had. I think I had a sparkling, I had like a natural soda, soda, a Zevia. Uh-huh. Uh, this might be TMI, but you know, hey, we go into the podcast, we go into all topics. So I don't drink soda, and then there was this company Zevia, which is soda, sparkling soda, uh-huh. but it's sweetened with stevia. Yeah, and I had one. And I just got in so incredibly bloated. I had some sort of gut interaction uh-huh. and it led to constipation. This is like four or five years ago. And I tried every trick in the book, magnesium, citrate, this, that, and I could not kick the constipation. I'm never constipated. My gut health is impeccable and I feel great. <laughs> so this was like hell on earth for me. Yeah. So then finally I said, okay, I don't know what else to do. So I went to colon hydrotherapy and it worked, right? Uh It worked and I had had it done before, but I'm always fascinated about people who go regularly. There's individuals who go every week or every month or other things. Are they actually shooting themselves in the foot by getting rid of good bacteria that's inside there? Yeah, you often hear people in the acute period saying that they felt relief. They feel better because they had a release right? and that's what they needed. Um, but you make a good point because, you know, this the, a similar topic comes up when people uh, have to prepare for a colonoscopy and they have to drink a bowel preparation. You're right. doing a flush out that way. Um, and so they sometimes people ask, uh, what happens to my microbiome when I do this flush out? Which is actually a fascinating question because it's actually been studied. It's, there was a article, I don't remember the year, I, I want to say 2014, um, but it was published in Gut, which is a which is a, a very renowned uh, journal for gastroenterology, and they showed that when you take like a, a large purge, like four liters of Go Lightly, which is that big gallon, um, uh, versus doing what we do now, which is a split dose preparation, where you drink 
less amount, but you're splitting it up into two two serving sizes, basically, that both of these kind of preps actually influence the microbiome in that the populations go down. Um, but it rebounds much quicker and better when you do the split dose prep. Mm. So it's basically like when you flood the system really hard with large volume, the microbiome takes a bigger hit. And so if you're doing that over and over again with the colonic hydrotherapy, number one, you're putting yourself at risk for perforation and all the other complications of having, you know, these procedures done. So doing that repeatedly also increases that risk just statistically, but then you're also bombarding the microbiome over and over and over again. And I don't really know if in the long run that's actually beneficial for you. Right. It'd be a cool study to do on people. Um, I don't even, we don't have the studies on that, you know? Yeah. So I think temporarily, like in your situation, it helped and that was good. Just like people take, um, you know, uh, laxatives, for or example, an or anima kit. Like yeah. But, you know, I always say, think about what's, what is it doing for your microbiome? Think of things in that way, you know, try to live your life in a microbiome type of a life. So how is this affecting my gut and my microbiome in the long run? Because that's really the question. If we don't know, then just be on the cautious side because we don't know. Listeners of this podcast know that I'm a big fan of community and all the mindfulness and, and how our social networks and our sociogenomics can improve our health. And I always say that if I had to make a choice, and it's never this way, you can choose both, but if I had to choose the right peer group or the perfect diet, I'd always choose the right peer group because that's gonna have so much impact on other areas of your life that impact your health. And then eventually you'll figure out your diet with that, mm -hmm. that group, they'll influence you. Um, talk to us a little about our connections and our social connections and the influence and the role that they play on our, on our microbiome and our um, telomeres. Huge connections. And we, we, you know, religion and philosophers from the beginning of time have talked about how important it is to be, you know, in interacting with your, um, your family, your peers, your environment in a, in a loving and compassionate manner. Now we actually have science that's kind of proving how these concepts are, are actually true. So kindness and compassion are good principles we know just as far as being, you know, human citizens on this planet. But they also affect our inner biology. We know that when we are mindful and we're compassionate uh, with our own self and with people around us, that we can actually increase our telomerase levels, make our telomeres uh, more resilient, longer, and also change the way the microbiome works as well. And they actually have done studies where they looked at people in um, neighborhoods that had low social cohesiveness, meaning that they, they were in environments where there was less trust. You were scared that somebody was going to steal your car or whatever. And they isolated for other things, you know, like diet and smoking and alcohol and those kind of things. And they found that uh, people had less diverse microbiome when they were in those uh, neighborhoods with low social cohesiveness. And that actually moving out of that area can actually improve the diversity of the microbiome, eliminating for other things. And the same things actually in the telomere research. 
Elizabeth Blackburn is the Nobel Prize scientist who discovered telomeres and telomerase. And she's there's a loads and loads of literature that, you know, her and her group has put out. And if you haven't read the book, um, The Telomere Effect that she wrote uh, with Alyssa Appel, I highly recommend it. It's, it's an amazing book. And I was super excited. I remember when the book first came out because I was like, I want to know what are the things that are going to make our telomeres longer, that's going to make our telomerase work better. I want to know if it's different than what I'm telling people about for their gut health and their microbiome. And it was like the exact same stuff, the exact same stuff, you know, make, uh, you know, cultivate your relationships, um, take care of your family, live in areas where there's less stress and more social cohesiveness. All of these kind of things actually affect your DNA's biology and affects your microbiome affects your mental health. They all go hand in hand together. And one of the key concepts I use to try to explain why your body thrives on on kindness and compassion is by telling people about um, some of the ways that Dr. Dan Siegel explains how the mind works. Um, he's one of my favorite guys. He's made a huge influence on... Um, uh, my practice and how I look at life. And, and anybody who wants to listen to more, he was on the podcast. Oh, he was? Yeah, on the podcast awesome. a few episodes ago, so you can look him up, Dr. Dan Siegel. But sorry to cut you off. Yeah, and so um, he describes how, you know, our mind works. We often think that our mind is in our head because that's a logical place because that's where our brain sits. But our mind is not just inside of our bodies. It's also between us. So I have my mind here, you have your mind there, but both of our minds are actually interacting with each other right now. Because it like interpersonal neurobiology. neurobiology yeah. yeah. And so he he says, you know, it's not me or we, it's we. That's yeah, really, me. yeah. <laughs> so once you realize that um, we are all connected to each other. Like we're interacting with this plant, we're interacting with each other, we're interacting with our environment. It's not just you within your body, it's you in this whole environment, in your environment. Um, then you realize that in order to optimize your health and you, how you feel and how you think and the environment that you live in, you have to be kind and compassionate to everything and everyone around you because they affect you and you affect them. And it's a cycle. The more you invest in that, the better your gut health is, the better your mood is, the better your brain is, which just exactly. goes all the way. This is just how around. we were built. It's not just a bunch of health people saying, hey, be nice to each other. This is how, this is, this is how we were designed as human beings, as social creatures who have emotions, feelings, thoughts, sensations. This is how, how, how nature made us. And so what we're doing now is just basically explaining how our biology works with regards to these things. But this is how we were always made to be. Fascinating. Dr. Marvin Singh, thank you for being on the podcast. It's been a true pleasure. Uh, you mentioned your Instagram earlier. I would love for you to reshare again. How can people find you? How can they look you up? And if they want to work with you as a patient, how can they uh, reach out to you? Yeah, my Instagram is at Dr. Marvin Singh. And my website's pretty easy to remember because it's the same name. It's uh, www.drmarvinsingh.com. 
and um, pretty easily accessible. Then my email's on there, my other social media links, everything's on there. So anybody can feel free to kind of follow my blog or shoot me a message or whatever. And we're pretty good at keeping back in touch. I appreciate you, brother. It's been an honor to be friends with you and to learn and to see you shine and posting all sorts of great articles and being in our mutual friends uh, docuseries, Interconnected. Yeah. If anybody wants to dive deeper into gut microbiome, they can sign up for the next release of that. um, And we'll have it in the show notes. And uh, um, thank you for doing the work that you do. Thanks for having me. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Just a reminder, this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast is not, I repeat, it's not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or otherwise qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you're looking for help in your journey, seek out a qualified medical practitioner. If you're looking for a functional medicine practitioner, you can visit ifm.org and search their find a provider database. It's important that you have somebody in your corner that's qualified, that's trained, that's a licensed healthcare practitioner helping you make changes, especially when it comes to your health.